0: Frank and I'm definitely powerless over alcohol and all mind-altering substances. I'd like to say a real prayer before I get started. Please, Lord, keep me honest, humble, and helpful. I lack about 72 hours, maybe a little more, 96 hours of having five years of uninterrupted sobriety. And I uh, I exhausted every possible means that I possibly could in my power to stay out there on those streets. I did not want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. That was my last resort. Everybody knew Frank was an alcoholic and a drug addict, but I still didn't want to admit and accept the fact that I was powerless over anything other than a Smith & Wessel. Uh, I started drinking at a young age, and I don't think it's necessary for me to get up here and tell you when I stole my first drink and drank it, or even when I got involved in uh, mind-altering substances. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm here for is to tell you how it was, and it wasn't uh, a very good road, either getting getting to this program or putting that first year in. When I put that first year in, Uh, the only thing I honestly believe that kept me sober was a very instrumental lady in my sobriety told me God wasn't going to give me nothing that I couldn't handle. And uh, I hung on to that and that serenity prayer. I did not pray to God because I believed that God that I knew at that time was going to pay me back. He was going to get even with a character like me for the people that I have stepped on down this road of qualifying for Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I didn't know if he was going to do it to me or the two children that were involved in this marriage that I was involved in at the time or to my mother or brother or something. I thought he would pay one of us back drastically. So I didn't pray to God. Matter of fact, I said, help me Jesus a lot, because I figured I wasn't good enough to speak to God. I figured, well, I'll talk to Jesus, his son, and uh, I'll let Jesus talk to God if he believes that it's necessary. Uh, that was my viewpoint of a power greater than myself at that time. I didn't want no too much part of him because I figured he was going to pay me back. I started using mind-altering substances probably 15, 16 years old, somewhere back in there. And all mind-altering substances did for me was made it harder for me to come to my knees due to the fact that I was an alcoholic. Uh, I'd get those tranquilizers to take the edge off in the morning and I would get a couple of those amphetamines to pick me up when I needed picked up. Uh, when I needed oblivia I would use something on the order of a synthetic morphine or a heroin. Um, I just had all the cures, you know what I mean? Uh, if alcohol beat me up too much the night before I knew something in that PDR that would uh, straighten me out for the next day, you know, until I felt a little bit better. I mixed and matched all the way down the road, from uh, hypodermic needles to uh, if I could have got my hands on some morphine suppositories, I would have crammed them up my ass. Um, I love to drink. I honestly love to drink. I loved alcohol and everything it did for me at one time, uh, until it became, to the, uh, it became like a big eraser in my life. You know these uh, gum erasers they sell the kids when they're writing on that Manila paper in uh, grade school, and you're, you just rub it over lightly, and you can, it just takes like a fine layer off, but you could still see the printing on a sheet. And you rub it over a couple more times, and it would just take off like maybe a couple more layers and you could barely see the writing and you rub it over a couple more times and you couldn't see the writing at all. Well, that's how alcohol did my life. At first, you couldn't see uh, love or joy in my eyes. And, and, and finally, it just vanished to where I became a big numb uh, vegetable walking around like a big eraser. Uh, alcohol lied to me. Uh, was a big layer for me. Uh, My life was self-will run riot at the ripe age of about 17 years old, 16 years old. My father had walked out of my life and uh, the bottle was calling the shots at this time, at this young age. The bottle and all those mind-altering substances. 19 years old, I had caught a felony, first-degree felony, And uh, I ran from the law out on bond. I hid over in the projects for a while. And uh, here was my thinking. If they catch up with me, I had a girlfriend. So uh, I tried my damnedest to uh, make her pregnant. And I figured if I took a pregnant woman in there and turned myself in, married to her legally, that uh, the court would, uh, you know, take that into my favor and maybe consider the fact that I might have to raise this child or I may have to take care of this woman. And they bought it, hook, line, and singer. singer. Um, I took Kathleen in at 19 years old. Uh, I was 20 at the time, and I took her in front of that judge with... uh, a couple month old baby boy. This all happened in a matter of three months time. Uh, I mean the marriage and uh, birth of my first son. Uh, She came to me about seven months, six months into her pregnancy and told me she was pregnant. She hid it from me all that time. And uh, I took all these people up in front of this judge and I set the stage real nice. And they slapped me on the hands with a couple years of probation and told me that, uh, that I better take care of that newborn baby boy and that new wife that I had, and I went on my way. I was, a, I was a victim of someone else's own good charity at that young age. See, that judge was being good to me. He was reaching out to help me, and, uh, and I bit him like a dog as soon as I turned my back. I started drinking real serious then because I was celebrating the uh, birth of my first son and I uh, got involved with uh, the steel mills. And I got me a job in the steel mills down there. And I was a street person, you know, that wacky tobacco and that jug of red wine and you know, a bottle of Ludes. And uh, I was on my way. Um, so, but when I got involved in the steel mills, these were different kinds of drinkers. They uh, were two-fisted, red-blooded uh, Americans, hard-working steel workers, and they drank uh, double-headers or uh, double-double in a water glass with a big 25-ounce fishbowl. Now, they were different kind of drinkers than me, and that's exactly what I wanted to be like. I wanted to be a two-fisted, red-blooded American worker and be able to handle those double doubles in uh, uh, the water glass, the wash glass on the side with them 25-ounce fish bowls. And I worked hard at it. I worked real hard at becoming one of those type of individuals. A new wife at home, and I drug her through seven, eight years of uh, uh, chronic stages of alcoholism. 1972. I got a, 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 a real bug up my hind end to change jobs. I needed a better place of employment. I didn't like uh, Jones and Laughlin Steel, so I went out to uh, Ford Motor Company, where I'm presently employed right now. In um, 1972, I went out to Ford Motor, and these guys didn't wait till the end of the shift to uh, start drinking. What they did is they had uh, great amounts of alcohol right on the premises. And they had tables set up like this in, in the cafeteria, and they were gambling. It was like uh, Las Vegas and uh, your favorite saloon all in the same place. I thought I had died and went to heaven. I honestly thought it was an alcoholic a drunkard's paradise. Uh, I could pay somebody to do my job a couple bucks here and there, worked my job for a couple hours, and I could go upstairs and uh, wean a bottle of whiskey and play uh, poker until my pockets were empty. I really liked this way of life. This was the way of life I chose. I really wanted to be. And then we had this strip. We have this strip out there that runs between the airport it runs between the airport and uh, it runs down Brook Park Road. It's, it's the, it is the strip in Cleveland. Uh, anything you want, you can get there. Uh, and if I got bored with Ford Motor Company, I'd take my, uh, my carcass out on that strip. My drinking became into the chronic stages. Uh, hit skip, Fleeing and eluding officers of the law, Uh, 100 miles an hour plus and a 25. Uh, Revoked my license for three years and I kept driving. That plastic card won't stop a drunk. Uh, I was deep, deep into the chronic stages of alcoholism. Uh, Family. domestic quarrels at home became physical. My wife would wait up for me till 2, 3 in the morning with a, a dinner, and I'd come home and I'd say, I wouldn't feed this to a dog, because it was all dried up, and I'd slam it up against the ceiling. Uh, that's what alcohol had done to me. 1979, June 6, 1979, I had came to my bottom, which I really thought was my bottom, and uh I didn't insert God into my life at this time. I was at my favorite watering hole out on that strip, and I was drinking and i I was barred from the from the place of business. I cussed the owner out in an Italian, and uh, he had called a couple uh officers to come and apprehend me and take me to jail and when I when I awoke I had the window down about four inches doors locked with a stereo blasting and a police officer had me by the back back of my hair and he says open up the door punk you're going to jail and with that coming out of a blackout I proceeded to drag him through that parking lot until I flung him up against the building. And when I flung this officer up against the building, when uh, he regained his balance and stuff like that, he reached in his holster and uh, started popping caps in the back of this Buick. I took him on about a five, five and a half mile high speed chase. They blew the rear window clean out of the Buick with a riot gun. They shattered the whole front windshield and they put 17 bullet holes into this car. I was driving at speeds of 115 miles an hour, laying down in the front seat, looking up through the ring in the steering wheel where it meets the dash. And it was like I had a spiritual awakening at this point in my life.
1: <laughs> Honestly,
0: and I was still drunk and I was still using. It was like there was a saint or some kind of philosopher or apostle sitting in the seat next to me. And he said, look, Frank, you're not going to outrun that radio. And I pulled it into a a place which was called Joanne Fabrics at the time. I pulled it in there at uh, 2.35, 2.40 in the morning and put my hands up on the roof and waited for the policeman to to catch up with me. And I'm looking at this car that I had put together, which was going to the junkyard that I put together. And uh, I started crying. I became angry and resentful that they had destroyed my property like this. And when they showed up, instead of putting my hands up and saying, I was I was going to go, I surrender, I'll go to jail, I started hooking and jabbing. And I caught this young rookie, 20, 20-some years old, with a right cross. And you know what happens when you, you start punching on the policeman, uh, A couple more showed up. And they took me on to jail. They started beating on me about 2.50 in the morning, and they let up at uh, 5.30. Four of them came into a bullpen. They locked me in a bullpen, a 12-by-20 room, all brick except for the front bars in the front. and, uh, And they thoroughly worked me over. I had black and blue marks all up and down my back, my inner thighs, my rib cage. I had these two little ribs broke here. And this is a brand new nose from Cleveland Clinic, what you're looking at here. Uh, I had black eyes deeply saturated into my cheeks and uh, I was lying in my own blood, in my own vomit, my own urine, and, and I was crying to God. And that prayer was answered very shortly. And the cry was, God, please take me now. I no longer want to live this way. They took me down to the county jail and they they put me in an eight by six cage, washed me up with uh, some peroxide and stuff so I didn't look that bad. And they let me lay there in a cell and didn't charge me for 72 hours. The charges were two counts of aggravated attempt to murder on two Cleveland policemen. And uh, second time in my life, first degree felonies. And I just... You know, I didn't know what to do, I was shaking like a leaf in the cell, and I didn't know any other way to live other than the way I was living. The way that I was living is the only way I knew to live, because I figured if you paid, you played, you paid. And that's plain and simple. If you got out there in that traffic, intoxicated, and you got picked up and blew over a .15 or whatever it is, you paid. That's plain and simple. That's the way I was brought up. Okay, I'm laying in a cell, and the third day comes along, and I didn't know nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. And this fellow from Ford Motor comes out there, who, who was my first sponsor. May his soul rest in peace. And uh, they bring him in. He, they got him into a conference room, and they set him on a table like this. And I remember the day just like it's right now. He's sitting at a table like this, and he's puffing on a, a, a pipe of Captain Black. And he's from, he was from Boston, maybe 150 pounds soaking wet. He had that Boston brogue to him. He said, Frank, and they sat me down in front of him in a chair. They said, Frank, you no longer have to live this way. Wasn't that the prayer that I cried out just a few days ago? And I started crying, and I fell off the chair. They carried me away, and he told me, before they carried me away, he told me that there was a place that I could go, and they had clean sheets on the bed, they had all the food that I could possibly want to eat, and they would give me whiskey every four hours in a Dixie cup. And I says, let's go, let's go, I was ready. He said, first you got to make bond. So the bond was set. And he took me from right by where the Cleveland Browns play the stadium there, county jail. He took me 20 blocks into the city to uh, St. Vincent Charity Rosary Hall. He did not lie to me. There were clean sheets on the bed. I met some marvelous, beautiful people. They gave me whiskey every four hours for the first 72 hours, and then they cut me off. They fed me and took care of me. They did not let no bill collectors, no wives, no, uh, no judges, lawyers, policemen could get to me unless they were a drunk. That's the only qualification they needed to come into that Rosary Hall, that treatment center, and speak to me. They had to be a drunk. They had to be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I met all kinds of people at this Rosary Hall. I met this one fellow named Kevin Burt, may his soul rest in peace. And he told me, he said, Frank, you're incapable of comprehending 12 steps. You're co- incapable of comprehending 12 traditions. And he says, you don't even know the first thing about it, absolute. So he took one of these three by, three by five index cards, and he wrote on the top of the card, in about half-inch letters, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had became unmanageable. And then underneath he put, in big letters, about an inch and a quarter, inch and a half, he put the word honesty. And he folded it in half, and he said, You know that guy that brought you in here? I want you to hang on to him like you're hanging on to your mama's apron string and keep this in your back pocket. And that's how I went out of there. That's exactly how I went out of there. I hung around this room 21, 22 months. I hung around these rooms. And I didn't do no third step, and I didn't do no second step. All I did was admit that I was an alcoholic and my life was unmanageable. That's all I did. I ran with this guy named Jack about 18 months solid and we'd go visit drunks in a hospital at 6 30 in the morning guys just coming off the street they're having a, lots of trouble getting the eggs from the plate to their mouth and we take cigarettes and we and we make I made a couple 12-step calls and I just he would never say why or give me a reason why we were doing these things but we did them okay it didn't become aware to me why we were doing those things until I had a slip. 21, 22 months into the program, and I just gave up on you people in these rooms. I told you I didn't have no God, nothing, nothing that I believed in. Um, I didn't work the steps. So what? I admitted I'm an alcoholic, and I know my life's unmanageable. And I went right back on out there. Right back on out there, I was going to meet I was going to meetings and I cut them down to about one every other week prior to my going back out and If you think I had a lot of trouble then, just hang on here for a few seconds, and i'm going to let you know what trouble's all about. I went back out there fifteen months and I picked that syringe up and uh And I mixed that red wine again, and I said, hey, heck with the bar scene, Uh, we can purchase more at a a state store or a beverage store and go straight home and drink it. See, I was into quantity, not quality no more. I was into uh, uh, satisfying my needs at any expense. I threw my ex-wife out. And I'd been divorced five years ago, December 20th. Five years ago this evening, I was in a jail cell. So I haven't been here that long. These are all new things for me. Uh, I threw the wife out. She took the kids. I'm not going to take her inventory, but she had a syringe in her arm. I had a syringe in my arm. Uh, two assholes don't make a hole, you know what I mean? And I knew that, and I knew that. And I was laying in a jail cell last December, I mean, five years ago, December, and I'm thinking to myself, her attorney called the jail cell and said, would you please contest this divorce? And I knew if I was ever gonna get my head screwed on right and walking back into the right path, which I was at one time, I just wasn't doing the right things. I wasn't working these steps. I'm going to have to do this on my own, no matter what the cost may be. So I didn't contest the divorce, and I immediately got me a finalization. I figured i want to do it on my own. Little did I know that this is a WE program. Anyway, January 1st, 1984, I made bond, and I had caught my third first-degree felony in my lifetime, December 10th, 1983. I got out of jail, I made bond, hopelessness had set into my life at this time, I had a brand new car sitting in the police station with the driver's seat up on the console, and I didn't wreck it. That's the only way they could apprehend me. They put my name and my address in the largest selling paper in the state of Ohio. Um, They found unknown substances in the car, which were nothing other than sleeping pills and tranquilizers. I could have told them what they were. And uh, I had felonious assault on two policemen, again, a six-mile high-speed chase. And I'm in the cell December 24, 1983, weaving up, braiding up some wool blanket, and I'm going to take my life at midnight so my children can see my pretty mug on the front page of the plane dealer Christmas morning. The big martyr. Self-pity. I was all caught up in it. For some odd reason I had this rosary Sister Victorine gave me at Rosary Hall and I kept it inside this bomber's jacket I had in a little secret pocket. It was all broke up, all the links were broke up on it. It just meant something to me and I kept it. She probably gives she probably used to give out on a yearly basis 2500 to 3000 of these rosaries, you know. There's nothing special. It was a jailhouse rosary, uh, cheap, fruit wood, and uh, they asked me December 24th if I wanted this rosary. I was in the jail cell, and I took this rosary and I started praying, not praying that I'd ever not ever drink again, not praying that I would get out of jail. But I was just praying that whatever God had to do with my life to make sure he gets it done. And I flushed that noose. I flushed that noose down the jailhouse commode. January 1st, I made bond. I made bond on a January 1st, New Year's Day, 1984. And the only person that came to see me in the cell was the prior old director of Rosary Hall. That's the only person that came to see me in this cell for 20-some days. And uh, he told me if I ever get out of jail to please call him no matter where it is, no matter where he is. So I called him collect long distance on the other side of Cuyahoga County, west of where I was at, about 30 miles west of where I was at. I didn't even have a quarter to put in the phone. I had a dial operator and get her to make all the arrangements. I got out of jail, and uh, Bob said he couldn't help me out with Rosary Hall. He said there was a 30-day waiting list all the way into February. I said, I can't wait that long. I said, I'm dealing with untreated alcoholism. And he believed me. He said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes he called me back in 10 minutes and he told me a treatment center that would take me it was about 16, 17 miles outside of Cleveland out of, outside the downtown area and uh, which was uh, St. John West Shore Hospital and he told me if I can get there that they got a bed waiting on me. Now it took me 72 hours to travel that 17 miles I hit every dope house, every bar anybody I knew that was holding you know from the holidays I went to their house to finish off their stocks. (laughs) And when I went to this and when I went to this St. John West Shore Hospital Serenity Hall A friend of mine, which is not a member of this program, he took me there because he caught me on the street and he said, you're a one sick cookie, you need help. And I said, I know it. I have a bed waiting on me at the hospital. When he took me there, I had put it in my mind when I turned up that last coffee cup for a Canadian club that that was the last drink that was ever going to cross my lips the rest of my life. Now I know this is a one day at a time program. And that's exactly how I work it. But I had made my mind up that alcohol would never cross these lips again. I made my mind up then, at that moment. Um, I got into St. John West Hospital and I'm just a babbling maniac. I'm telling all, all these counselors and therapists about there's no gas in my home and they cut the water off. And I have a car sitting in the police station and blah, 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 and on, and on, and on, and uh, they thought I was just one raving lunatic, which I was, and this lady put me in a corner, a little 98-pound Irish girl, older gal, and she threw her finger up in my face and said, listen, Frank, God is not going to give you anything you can't handle, and I took that and that serenity prayer, and I started to put me a program together. Oh, it was real painful, and I did have a lot of problems. But with these people in these rooms, see, and rooms like this all over the state of Ohio, I was able to put a few days together. They sent me on to another treatment center because they took blood tests there, and they found out my toxic level was uh, super high, and they said 14 days wouldn't be enough, so they sent me a month to the Pocono Mountains. This place called the White Deer Run. And when I got the White Deer Run, they lied to me to get me there, first of all. They told me there was horseback riding, skiing, <laughs> tobogganing. And I, and I bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And I got on the plane, and I got up there, and it was nothing like that. It was an old tuberculosis camp, which had been converted into an a alcohol and drug rehabilitation center. A really intense place. You know, a lot of one-on-one, you know. And a bunch of cabins on the side of a mountain. And I landed there January 18, 1984. Still had it embedded in my mind that I would never pick up another drop of liquor again and let it cross my lips. No matter what they taught me out there, no matter what they had to tell me out there, I still had it embedded in my mind. I went to this white deer run, and they diagnosed me as I've seen too many gangster films in my day, uh, too many James Cagney's on Saturday mornings, and John Garfield's, and uh, uh, the, all the old criminals, Everett G. Robinson, and uh, see, they, thought, they, they really believed that I had a, a lot of character defects before I had put alcohol and drugs into my body, and they were right. And I did watch a lot of gangster movies on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, they picked me down like a like a like a pin. They just knew exactly what 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 made me tick. And uh, they gave me a name of a guy named Dudley Dudley B. Now I didn't have nothing other than a ticket for the bus station to come from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which is about 600 miles out of Cleveland. I had a ticket for Trailways bus station. I had a dollar, a dollar. They give you a dollar cash and a sandwich. Now, that's all I had to travel, okay? I get on this bus, and uh, I think God puts tests test on us, honestly. If you made it here, you're going to have to believe this, that God tested, tested us in different ways. And they sat me down on the bus. And the first stop they made, this drunk comes on with a big shopping bag full of whiskey. And he says, I'm on my way to Oklahoma. I ain't never been out of uh, Williamsport before in my life. And he says, uh, me and you are going to get drunk. And, man, I just turned white like a ghost. And I said, no, we aren't going to get drunk. <laughs> he said, what's the matter? You can't drink? And this is the only time in my whole sobriety that I ever had done this. I says, I'm allergic to alcohol. Now that's the only time I've ever done that in my whole sobriety. Now I just tell you, I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. You put that inside of me and I go nuts. I'm like a flying saucer that just went out of orbit, you know? <laughs> but it's the only time I ever did that. And I told this guy, I said, I said, listen, mister. I said, I'm very allergic to alcohol. I'll have a tantrum, convulsions, and I'll break out in hives. And, he said, well, you might as well go sit up by the bus driver, he said, because I'm drinking everything in this bag between here and Oklahoma. And he did. And uh, I believe that was my first test from God. <clears throat> I'm riding on the bus, and, and it happened to be the bus driver was a real spiritual guy, and that was good for me. And I got to Cleveland, all I had was a dollar. So I went and got four quarters, and I had this phone number in my pocket, Dudley B., Okay. Now this rang a bell, but I just couldn't put the name together with a face. He was somewhere in the Cleveland area. Okay? Throw so a quarter in the phone, and my brother, I call my brother, and he comes, picks me up, and takes me over to the house, which is about 10, 15 miles from the bus station. Maybe 12 miles. I get to the house, and, uh, and the front door, sh- the locks are sheared off the front door. And someone went in and blew up my only prized possession, which was my stereo. My only prized possession in my, in my life is my stereo equipment, and someone blew it up. So uh, I start crying. And uh, there's no gas, and I start crying. And there's no water, and I start crying. And then someone ransacked my house and took all the valuables inside of it, and I start crying, okay? And I'm sitting there, and I'm crying, six foot three and I blew up about 25 pounds when I was in treatment so I was about 225 pounds 224 and uh, I'm crying and I'm thinking to myself man you're wallowing in this crap some more what are you doing you better call that Dudley B and you better get to a meeting so that's what I did that's what I did no car no gas no water no locks on the front door and it's February 18th, 1984, okay? I go to a meeting that night, and I walk to a meeting which was close to the house. I got home, and the next day I call this guy, Dudley B. He's my co-sponsor, he's in the room tonight. He made the trip up here with me, all right? Dudley B. was coming to the program, 40, 50 pounds, overweight, when I was sitting in them rooms in 1981. And I just shrug it off. I didn't never even put the name together, Dudley B with the face. Never. And he works in the same place of business I do. God works through people. That's all I can say. God works through people. I'm calling Dudley two thirty in the morning, I'm saying, Dudley, you know it's cold inside this house? I can see my breath. I called him one night, I said, Dudley. The moisture in my nostrils is froze, and he didn't really want to hear. It, you know what I mean? He just says, "Don't drink. I'll see you at work tomorrow, and uh, we'll get together and go to meet." Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was ready to blow. I mean, I'm asking this guy for real live answers. You know, come on down here, pick me up, and take me over to your condominium and put me up for tonight. Don't let me freeze in here, Dudley. And he just didn't do it, you know? I mean, he didn't buy it. And exactly what I needed, exactly what I needed, I was riding a bicycle 8.9 miles on a daily basis from Lakewood all the way out to where I work by the airport every morning. I'm going down the road one March, early March, and I'm riding the bike, and I got my sweats on, and I got thermals under the sweats and two, three pairs of socks, hands wrapped up in rags with gloves underneath the rags. And I'm going down the street, and I'm pedaling, and the flakes are coming down about the size of Susan B. Anthony coins. Real pretty morning, you know, the kind you like to see through the windshield. You know? And I'm pedaling, and I'm in the middle of Henry Ford Boulevard going down there. And Dudley pulls up in his Pinto with his higher-powered sticker on the back. You know? He rolls down the window, and the windshield wipers are slapped. He says, Frank, keep pedaling. It gets better. And, man, I'm telling you, I wanted to come off that bicycle and dive right inside that pedal wagon. I ain't lying. I'm, I mean, I was intense. <laughs> and I, I used to go to meetings, and there's people here that can tell you. I'd sit down in a room, and no one would sit near me. No one would sit near me. I'm sober, so what? Man, life sucks. And that's my attitude. That was my attitude. Uh, And it got better. It got better. You didn't get better right away, either. I think about May, I got the gas cut back on. I went to a support group on a Monday night, and I come in, the support group, and my face is glowing, you know, like I hit the lotto or something, you know? And he says, "Uh, Frank, what's up? You know, and they could see it in my face, you know? I mean, I was enthused. I said, i got the thermostat on 92. When I get home, I'm, I'm going to see how the heat works. You know, I mean, it was a big deal to get the gas cut on. I think uh, June or July, I had purchased that pipe that broke from the street to the house, which is real expensive, and my credit was shot. No plumber in the state of Ohio that gave me credit. But uh, I purchased that pipe, and I had, I, I had cold water and hot water, and uh, things got better. I bought a $250 car the first year and I paid $880 driver back and forth to work and to meetings. <laughs> I had uh, all this uh, self-pride, too. I remember all this self-pride I had. I came into a meeting one night and uh, what a coat rack was, I threw my 12-speed. And I, I sat down at the meeting and I pulled these uh, thermal gloves off and uh, had a stocking hat and I pulled it up because the sweat was running down from, you know, pedaling. And, uh, this guy, Jerry, from the east side says, uh, hey, Frank, he says, are uh, you really taking this uh, physical uh, aspect of the program to heart? I said, well, I'm going to look good in a swimsuit this summer. See, I couldn't say, Jerry, I ain't got no car. Can you stop by the house next Tuesday and pick me up? I, I, I had that self-pride, you know. Uh, you know, I just, I just couldn't bend that low to say, Jerry, I really need a ride. My car's smashed up. It's total. Things got better. I also used a psychiatrist because uh, I was on the verge to kill a few human beings. Uh, this woman that uh, I had divorced back in December, that we went through a divorce, I caught her entertaining her boyfriend uh, in the middle of the night. You know, I just walked in through the front door like I owned a place and uh, I was still legally married to her and, and, and I snapped. I snapped. That's how I got them. Uh, two counts of felonious assault in December of 83. Um, so I had to go see a shrink on these deep, deep resentments I had. And uh, the book told me that. The book told me that. I was reading the book, and it says that all our answers may not be between, between these blue covers, but uh, there are professionals out there that can assist along. And uh, that's exactly what I did. I went to a, a psychiatrist, that only dealt with alcoholics and drug addicts that had been through a treatment center somewhere, okay? That's the kind of psychiatrist I went to. And I went to this uh, support group for a year, every Monday night for a year. It's only 12-week uh, support group, but I went for a year because I needed it. I needed support for the whole first year. I couldn't do it on my own. I can't do it on my own today. I can't. But I needed someone to help me get going, to help me get going right in the right path again. Um, this woman, this little Irish girl, gal that uh, told me that God wasn't going to put nothing in my path that I couldn't handle, called me up, and she happened to be a counselor at this hospital. And she said she needed some help. And I said, well, Beth, you know, I'm on a bicycle. She said, no, 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 I'll provide transportation for you every Wednesday night. And I volunteered for the next three years out at this hospital. The first three years of my sobriety. Every Wednesday night from 6 o'clock, 6.30 to 8.30, whatever the case may be, been, uh, I was at the hospital. And I volunteered my time. I figured that's a very, very small price to give up for what I have received. I had received twice in my life is... Uh, you can't purchase it. You can't go to one of these jitter joints here in Columbus or the surrounding area and throw down five grand and say, okay, you take this nice-looking blonde here and you give her uh, you give her five years of sobriety, or, or you give her those 12 steps and those 12 traditions and four absolutes. See, you can't purchase what I bought. You can't purchase it. Uh, I gave my life up for it, and I give my life up for what goes on in these rooms. I give my life up for what goes on in between these two two covers here. Uh, that book right there has all the answers. All the answers are in between these two blue covers, and I can guarantee that. The greatest love story I've ever ever read, anyhow. But uh, I started going to meetings, and I worked something out with the... Uh, the judicial system downtown they told me I had to do 15 consecutive weekends in the county jail plus go to five meetings a week and work at Ford Motor six days a week now it's impossible how can I spend 15 consecutive weekends in the county jail work six days five six days a week but we did it we did it I did 15 consecutive weekends in the county jail I went to 320 meetings the first year I had them logged for the court system okay so that tells you how many nights out of the first year I sat home and watched Hill Street Blues. Uh, and uh, I just did what I had to do because, see, the life that I was living was rigor mortis, was death. It was death. And I, I honestly believed that on January 4, 1984, that I had been reborn. I, been, had, I had been reissued life again to live. One day at a time, and not no more. Um, I work with a few guys in the program, and uh, that is very, very beneficial to me. These guys don't know how to keep me sober. Um, They just don't know what they do for my program. I'm getting ready to celebrate my fifth anniversary, and I can honestly stand here and tell you, honestly stand here and tell you tonight, that has, has gotten better. Every day I put an effort into this program. But I had to put an effort forward in order to receive the benefits that I had. Um, I banged my head against the wall with that third step. And I finally got with someone that understood God, just like me, and uh, I damn near memorized the first 70 pages of, of the big book to the three pertinent ideas, A, B, and C. And uh, we sat down and did a third step. Because that's what the book says. That's what the book says. To get with somebody that understands God in the same fashion that you understand God. May it be a rabbi, a priest, or just a good friend in these rooms. Maybe it belongs to the same domination as you. Okay? Or reads out of the same Bible as you or whatever. That's all. And I had to do it with him in order for it to work and it seemed like a bunch of doors just opened up, like on a pinball machine, Bam, bam, bam It just all opened up, you know? It was like there was just like a new life. After 22 months banging my head and going to meetings, it was just all of a sudden like I had a new life. I had received a brand new life again, rejuvenated it. That's what these uh, meetings do for me. They rejuvenate the sobriety that I have. I, I, I don't go to the same meetings all the time. I go all over the place. I'm welcomed anywhere in the state of Ohio. And the reason why is because I have to keep my sobriety green, and I just got to keep on going. i got to keep on going. Uh, I go to my home group on uh, Sunday night as much as I possibly can. I've missed it uh, maybe a half a dozen, maybe a dozen times in the last five years. But uh, I'm there every Sunday night. And the reason why is because I don't believe that they put a roster in front of me to put my name on it, my sobriety date, my phone number, just for a signature. They wanted a little bit more than a signature when I put my name on that roster. I believe that you should be extremely faithful to your home group. Uh, If you sign someone's roster, you better get your butt there every seventh day. Uh, Sobriety simple. Simple today. My thinking is complicated and I have to read these little books in the morning, these little meditations and stuff and and get on my knees and pray and ask God if I could get the strength and the courage to carry his will out one more day, the best of my ability. I am not perfect. And the book says we don't strive to be perfect or we don't strive to be no perfect. we don't strive for spiritual perfection. We strive for spiritual progress, and that's exactly what I do. I'm a better. I have a better relationship with that guy upstairs today than I did January 4, 1984. And you better believe that. You better believe that. And if you don't, you're just fooling yourself. You better come back here another night next week and hear somebody else's story. But I believe in God today. A big, large God. Bigger than Smith & Wesson Company. Bigger, you know, big. I mean really big. You know what I mean? And uh, and if you don't have a God, use mine till so you get one. Um, in Back back in my heyday years when Janice was alive and Jimmy and all them guys, uh, I used to watch this movie, and I used to watch it every time I had a chance. It was called... Uh, Easy Rider, okay? And, he, and they're doing LSD, and they're, they're, they're uh, coming through this graveyard, okay? And they're kicking over tombstones, and, 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 and they're tripping, and, and I mean, they're really tripping. <laughs> and uh, they walk into this whorehouse, you know? or uh, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, they walk in there, and they look up, and there's a sign on the wall. And, you know, this didn't make sense to me until I became sober. And the sign said, If there was no God, it would be necessary for man to invent one. So if you don't have no God, use mine until you invent your own. Okay? And uh, I hope each and every one of you have a very nice New Year's. I was really glad to be asked to come down here this evening. Um, It don't get no better than this, I don't think. I mean, I, I... It gets so good, it scares me sometimes. It's like, you know, when you are going to make it better? Why don't you let me know in a little advance notice? Because, I mean, it just gets so good, it almost scares me. Uh, I'd like to thank John for asking me. Thank each and every one of you for putting up with me and uh, listening to this beautiful gift that I had received. I had received for a second time in my life. I just don't, it's unbelievable that you get two shots at something like this. But they say those doors are open, you know. They say those doors are open. But I'm not going back out there to find out if I can get back in. I had too hard of a time to get here again and stick around. So I'm not going back out there, not today, to find out if you people are going to let me back in these rooms. Uh, there's, there's, there's a, psychi- a psychiatric institutions all full of jokers like me. Their, uh, County Morgue uh, has... Uh, All kinds of drawers down there filled with jokers like me. See, I'm not unique. I'm not, I'm far from being unique. Okay, and uh, I'm really grateful that I am able to become an active member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Do we say the Lord's Prayer here at the end of the week? Okay, join me in the Lord's Prayer.